Today on Legalese, it is time for my Supreme Court Roundup. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Legalese. My name is Bob. I am your host and I want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. And if you are new to the program, I would especially like to welcome you. Uh, This is a podcast where we're going to be discussing constitutional law as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Uh, Now, real quick, I just want to remind you guys that this show is available in a number of different formats. Uh, You can find the video version on YouTube, Rumble, and Odyssey. We have an audio-only version that is on Anchor and Spotify. Uh, And also, uh, you can go over to Substack and... uh, not only catch the show there, but also I do write a lot of articles there. Uh, additional stuff that I don't really put out here uh, on the show. So if you go over to Substack, you can find the audio and video version of the show. Plus, you can find a bunch of great articles uh, that I've written. I just put one out recently about the uh, Declaration of Resolves of the Continental Association. Really interesting piece. But um, anyways... Uh, Yeah, so you can find links to all of those down in the video description. All right, so for today, it is time for our Supreme Court Roundup. The Supreme Court has just announced uh, the cases that it will be hearing uh, this term, uh, and so we are going to be talking about those. Now, uh, I essentially, how this works is the court... Uh, generally takes on around 100 merit cases every term, and I will be focusing on a select few that I think will uh, likely be worth following and keeping you guys updated on throughout the term as these cases unfold. And this is because these are cases that I believe have the potential to be landmark cases uh, in important areas of constitutional law. This is very much like what I did last term with Dobbs and Bruin, for example. Uh, So, This term, there's uh, five cases I'm going to be focusing on here today, and we're just going to be going through and doing a quick review of what each one is about to give you guys some idea. So the first case we're going to be talking about is Moore versus Harper, and this one is already uh, gaining a lot of controversy, uh, and this is about the independent state legislature doctrine. Uh, We'll be getting into what that is here in just a second, Uh, but uh, moving on. We will also be looking at two Commerce Clause cases. One is uh, Halland v. Bracken, which is an Indian Commerce Clause case. And the other one is National Pork Producers Council v. Ross, which is a dormant Commerce Clause case. And then finally, we have two cases dealing with Section 230 of the Communications and Decency Act. This is the section of the law that is commonly known as the First Amendment of the Internet. Uh, and these are the cases of Twitter v. Tamna and Gonzalez v. Google. So let's just uh, go through these cases. I'll give you an idea of what each one is about here. Uh, and we are going to be starting uh, with Moore versus Harper. All right. So this case uh, is, is undoubtedly going to have some very serious consequences, regardless of how the court decides. This is a voting rights case, uh, as again, it's Moore v. Harper. uh, And this is a North Carolina case regarding what is known as the Independent State Legislature Doctrine. 
And so the main issue here in this case is this case concerns, again, the independent state legislature doctrine, which theorizes that state legislatures alone are empowered by the Constitution to regulate federal elections without oversight from state courts. And the specific uh, question presented in this case that the court will be answering uh, is whether a state's judicial branch may nullify the regulations governing the manner of holding elections for senators and representatives prescribed by the legislature thereof, according to the Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, and replace them with regulations of the state court's own devising based on vague constitutional state provisions purportedly vesting the state judiciary with power to prescribe whatever rules it deems appropriate to ensure a fair or free election. So just a little bit of basic background on the case here. Uh, this case uh, concerns, again, the independent state legislature doctrine. Now, on uh, November 4th of 2021, the North Carolina General Assembly adopted a new congressional voting map based on 2020 census data. The legislature at the time, the legislature at the time was controlled by the Republican Party. Uh, and in the case Harper v. Hall, in 2022, a group of Democratic-affiliated voters and nonprofit organizations challenged the map in state court, alleging that the new map was a partisan gerrymander that violated the state's constitution. And on February 14th of 2022, the North Carolina Supreme Court ruled that the state could not use the map in the 2022 election and remanded the case to the trial court for further proceedings. Now, the trial court adopted a new congressional map drawn by three court-appointed experts. Now, in that state Supreme Court opinion, uh, Justice uh, Robin Hudson wrote, Today we answer this question, does our state constitution recognize that the people of this state have the power to choose those who govern us by giving each of us an equally powerful voice through our vote? Or does the Constitution give to members of the General Assembly, as they argue here, unlimited power to draw electoral maps that keep themselves and our members of Congress in office as long as they want, regardless of the will of the people, by making some votes more powerful than others? We hold that our Constitution's Declaration of Rights guarantees the equal power of each person's voice in our government, through voting in elections that matter. She went on to say that our dissenting colleagues have overlooked the fundamental reality of this case rather than stepping outside of our role as judicial officers and into the policy-making realm. Here we are carrying out the most fundamental of our sacred duties, protecting the constitutional rights of the people of North Carolina from overreach by the General Assembly. Rather than passively deferring to the legislature, our responsibility is to determine whether challenge legislative acts, although presumed constitutional, encumber the constitutional rights of the people of our state. Here, our responsibility is to determine whether challenged apportionment maps encumber the constitutional right of the people to vote on equal terms and to have substantially equal voting power. This role of the courts, they go on to say, is not counter to precedent, but was one of the earliest recognized. And here they cite a 1787 case, Bayard v. Singleton, uh, and in a passage quoted by the dissenters, the court held that it must step in 
to keep the General Assembly from taking away the state's constitutional rights of the people, and if the members of the General Assembly could do this, they might, with equal authority, render themselves the legislatures of the state for life without any further election of the people. This we cannot countenance. And on February 25th of 2022, prior to the state's primary election on May 17th, Republican state legislatures had filed an emergency appeal to the United States Supreme Court asking to halt the state court's order until the Supreme Court could review the case. Now, the court denied this request. Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch dissented in the dissent, and in a concurrence by Justice Kavanaugh, the justices stated that the independent state legislature doctrine was an important question for the court to resolve, and on March 17th of 2022, the North Carolina House of Representatives, Timothy K. Moore, uh, filed a petition for a writ of certiorari in this case, and the court did grant review on that cert petition on January 30th, or excuse me, on June 30th of 2022. All right, moving on to our next case, we are going to be looking at National Pork Producers Council v. Ross. So the issue in this case is, uh, it concerns the constitutionality of the conditions California's Proposition 12 imposed on pork producers nationwide in order to sell pork products in California. Now, the questions presented that have been accepted by the Supreme Court that they will be answering in this case are twofold. First, whether allegations that a state law has dramatic economic effects largely outside of the state and require pervasive changes to an integrated nationwide industry state a violation in the Dormant Commerce Clause, or whether the extraterritoriality principle described in this court's decision is now a dead letter. And secondly, whether such allegations concerning a law that is based solely on preferences regarding out-of-state housing of farm animals states a pike claim. And we will be getting to what a pike claim is here in just a second. First, I want to give you some other background information. So California's Proposition 12 is a law that was passed in 2018. And in this law, voters approved a proposition uh, that initiated a state statute to establish a minimum square feet confinement requirement for veal calves breeding female pigs and egg-laying hens. Now, Proposition 12 was designed to ban the sale of veal, whole pork, meat, and eggs in California when the animals were confined to areas below minimum square feet requirements. The ban also applied to whole pork meat from the confined breeding pigs' immediate offspring. Proposition 12 required breeding female pigs, also known as sows, to have a 24 square feet usable floor space area per animal, and the Humane Society of the United States sponsored in uh, a ballot initiative, and HSUS President Wayne uh, Pissell said, Californians know that locking farm animals in tight cages for the duration of their lives is cruel and compromises food safety. All animals deserve humane treatment, especially those raised for food. Opponents include the Association of California Egg Farmers 
and the named uh, petitioner, the National Pork Producers Council, who argue that the required changes would increase food prices and create meat and egg shortages. Now, on December 5th of 2019, the National Pork Producers Council and the American Farm Bureau Federation sued California Department of Food and Agriculture Secretary Karen Ross uh, in the U.S. District Court for Southern California. Now, in that case, plaintiffs sought to invalidate Proposition 12 on the grounds that the citizen-initiated measure violated the Interstate Commerce Clause. Now, the Dormant Commerce Clause, according to the plaintiffs, has the consequence of restricting states from engaging in extraterritorial regulation. They say that the inevitable effect of Proposition uh, Proposition 12 is to regulate out-of-state production. Out-of-state production must submit to California's mandated production methods or lose access to California's large market. Now, Judge Thomas Whelan dismissed that case on April 27, 2020. He ruled that Proposition 12 was not directed at interstate commerce and did not call for uniform practices throughout the United States. Thus, Proposition 12, he said, does not regulate extraterritoriality because it does not target solely interstate commerce, and it regulates in-state and out-of-state conduct equally. And the ruling was appealed uh, to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which upheld the district court's order on July 28th of 2021. Now getting to the Pike test that they talked about. So the Pike test tests whether a state law violates the Dormant Commerce Clause, uh, which is generally governed by a test gleaned from Pike v. Bruce Church, Inc. in 1970. And in Pike, Arizona had passed a law requiring, sometimes at great expense, Arizona cantaloupe growers to label their products as coming from Arizona, regardless of where the cantaloupes were eventually packed and shipped from. Now, the court invalidated this law as protectionist, coming up with the following framework. First, if the state or local law is specifically purposed with economic protectionism, it is automatically unconstitutional. Second, if the purpose is not economic protectionism and is otherwise legitimate, the court will use a balancing test that will examine the significance of the burden that the law places on interstate commerce, and it will ask if the value of the benefit outweighs this burden. Uh, In other words, uh, as stated in Pike, where the statute regulates even-handedly, it will be upheld unless the burden imposed on such a commerce on such commerce is clearly excessive in relation to the putative local benefits. And the next case we will be looking at here is Twitter v. Tamina. Now, the main issue in this case here uh, is it concerns internet service providers' liability under Section 2333 of the Anti-Terrorism Act and Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. And the two questions presented uh, that the court will be addressing here uh, is, uh, one, whether a defendant that provides uh, generic, widely available services to all its numerous users 
and regularly works to detect and prevent terrorists from using those services, knowingly provided substantial assistance under Section 2333 merely because it allegedly could have taken a meaningful or aggressive action to prevent such use. Now, the second question will be whether a defendant whose generic, widely available services were not used in connection with the specific act of international terrorism that injured the plaintiff may be liable for aiding and abetting under Section 2333. And to give you a bit of background on the case, what happened was in uh, 2017, uh, an Abdullaker uh, Mashaprove, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm butchering that name here, uh, affiliated with the organization Islamic State, shot and killed 39 people uh, in the Rina nightclub in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, including a certain Nauras Alisov, who is a Jordanian citizen. He is the plaintiff in this case, or no, excuse me, the plaintiff in this case. Uh, Meyer, Lawrence, Sarah, and Damana Tamana are relatives of Alisov, and they have filed a lawsuit against internet service providers and platforms, including Twitter, Google, and Facebook in the U.S. District Courts. Uh, they originally sued in the Northern District of California. And they allege that the providers aided and abetted Islamic State group as the group used the platform for recruitment messaging, uh, such as threats and propaganda, and to terrorize civilians. And they asserted that Islamic State would not be what it was without the free communications platform the companies have provided. Their complaint alleges that the providers were directly liable under Section 2333 of the Anti-Terrorism Act and that they concealed their support. And the providers moved to dismiss the case. The district court ruled that the plaintiffs failed to state a claim for conspiracy to commit an act of international terrorism or for aiding and abetting such an act and that the direct liability claims failed to properly allege cause. The court dismissed the claims and the plaintiffs appealed to the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Now, to give you an idea of the laws that are uh, they are quoting from here, Section 2333, so there are uh, two key sections we need to understand here. And so uh, in the petition for the writ of certiorari, uh, Twitter asked the court to review Section 2333, subsection A and subsection D2 of the Anti-Terrorism Act. So uh, 2332 subsection A states, action and jurisdiction, any uh, national of the United States injured in his or her person, property, or business by reason of an act of international terrorism or his or her estate survivors or heirs may sue, therefore, in any appropriate district court of the United States and shall recover threefold the damages he or she sustains at the cost of the suit, including attorney's fees. And the other part is section D2. This deals with liability. And in this section says, in an action under subsection A for an injury arising from an act of international terrorism committed, planned, or authorized by the organization that had been designated as a foreign terrorist organization under section 219 of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is found at 8 U.S.C. section uh, 1189, as of the date on which such act of international terrorism was committed, planned, and authorized, liability may be asserted as to any person who aids or abets by knowingly providing substantial assistance or who conspires with a person who committed such an act 
of international terrorism. All right, and the next case we're going to be looking at is a related case. This is Gonzalez versus Google. And in this case, uh, the issue concerned here is the case concerns the scope of the liability for and immunity for Internet service providers and platforms under Section 230, Subsection C1 of the Communications Decency Act. And the question presented in this particular case, does Section 230, Subsection C1 uh, immunize interactive computer services when they make targeted recommendations of information provided by another information content provider or only limit the liability of interactive computer services when they engage in traditional editorial functions such as deciding whether to display or withdraw with regard to such information. Now, a little bit of background here in the case. Uh, in 1996, the U.S. Congress passed the Communications Decency Act. This law provided general immunity to Internet platforms from liability for content published by users of their services. Again, this is a section of law that is known as the First Amendment of the Internet. Now, on November 15th, U.S. citizen Nohimi Gonzalez was killed at La Belle uh, Equipe Bistro in Paris in a terrorist attack committed by the Islamic State. Gonzalez's family filed a lawsuit under the Anti-Terrorism Act in the United States District Court for the Northern District of California against Google, alleging that videos on its YouTube platform aided the Islamic State's recruitment efforts and specifically recommended the videos through its user-targeted algorithm. In the petitioner to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Reynolds Gonzalez et al. asked the court to consider whether providers are still protected from liability when their algorithm targets users and recommends to others their content. So, uh, just to give you an idea of what we're talking about here, uh, this is uh, the Communications Decency Act uh, and their petition for writ of certiorari that was accepted by the court. Uh, specifically asked them to look at uh, 230 subsection C1 of the Communications and Decency Act. And so the part of the law that they are being asked to review is about the protection for good Samaritan blocking and screening of offensive material, specifically the treatment of a publisher or speaker. And it says that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another uh, information content provider. And uh, this case originally went to the Ninth Circuit, and in the Ninth Circuit's opinion, uh, on appeal from the District Court, uh, the Ninth Circuit found that they affirmed the District Court's ruling, holding that Section 230 protects the algorithmic recommendations uh, and writing for the majority in that case, Judge Morgan Christian wrote, quote, The opinion addresses three separate appeals. The Gonzalez appeal concerns claims for both direct and secondary liability against Google. In that case, the district court granted Google's motion to dismiss, concluding that most of Gonzalez plaintiff's claims were barred pursuant to 47 U.S.C. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and that the Gonzalez plaintiff's direct liability claims failed to adequately allege proximate cause. They say the Tamanagh and Claiborne appeals concern claims for secondary liability against Google, Twitter, and Facebook 
In both of these cases, the district court granted defendant's motion to dismiss on the grounds that the plaintiffs failed to plausibly allege a secondary liability under the ATA. He goes on to say that we have jurisdiction pursuant to 28 U.S.C. 1291, and we conclude the district court in Gonzalez properly ruled that Section 230 bars most of the Gonzalez plaintiff's claims and that the Gonzalez plaintiffs failed to state an actionable claim as to their remaining theories of liability asserted pursuant to the ATA, the Anti-Terrorism Act, uh, in Tamina. And we conclude that the district court erred by ruling the plaintiffs failed to state a claim for aiding and abetting liability under the ATA. He says the district court did not reach 230 immunity in Tamina and in Claiborne. And we conclude that the district court correctly held that the plaintiffs failed to plausibly plead their claim for aiding and abetting liability. We therefore affirm the judgment in Gonzalez and Claiborne and reverse and remand for further proceeding in Tamina. All right, and we got one more claim we are going to be looking at here today. One more case as it is. And this is uh, Bracken v. Haland. Uh, and this is an especially interesting one because it is a Commerce Clause case uh, dealing with uh, a really almost unused part of the clause, the Indian Commerce Clause. Uh, and unlike the other two provisions in the Commerce Clause that deal with commerce with foreign nations and between the several states, the Indian Commerce Clause has almost no history of litigation behind it, which means this case is likely to be major and precedent-setting, uh, and it will turn on identifying the original meaning of the clause itself. Now, the main issue at stake here in the case, this case concerns the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. And this governs the removal of out-of-home placement of American Indian children uh, and the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Uh, excuse no, never mind. Uh, and the question presented is threefold. First, whether various provisions of the ICWA, namely the minimum standards of Section 1912 A, D, E, and F, uh, the placement preference provision of Section 1915A and B, and the record-keeping provisions of Section 1915E and 1951A violate the anti-commandeering doctrine of the Tenth Amendment. And second, whether the individual plaintiffs have Article Three standing to challenge the ICWA's placement preferences for other Indian families, under 25 U.S.C. 1915, subsection A3, and for Indian foster homes under section or 25 U.S.C. section 1915, subsection B3, and finally, whether section 1915 A3 and B3 are rationally related to a legitimate government interest and therefore consistent with the equal protection of Title II. Now, we're going to look at those two provisions that they're talking about here, uh, 25 U.S.C. 1915 subsection A3 and subsection B3. So, as you can see here, uh, 25 U.S.C. section 1915 deals with placement of Indian children. Uh, and the first part that they are talking about, section A3, deals with adoptive placements and preference in any adoptive placement of an Indian child under state law, a preference shall be given in the absence of good cause 
to the contrary to the placement with other Indian families. And the second section of the law that they were talking about, subsection B3, deals with foster care or pre-adoptive placement criteria and preferences. And this says that any child accepted for foster care or pre-adoptive placement shall be placed in the least restrictive setting, which most approximates a family and in which his special needs, if any, may be met. The child shall also be placed within reasonable proximity to his or her home, taking into account any special needs of the child. In any foster care or pre-adoptive placement, a preference shall be given in the absence of good cause, to the contrary, to a placement with an Indian foster home, licensed or approved by an authorized non-Indian licensing authority. So to give you a little background of this case here, The Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978 established a minimum standard for Native American children removed from their families and set placement preferences for those children uh, with a member of the child's extended family and a foster home licensed and approved or specified by the child's tribe at the top of the list, as well as uh, the fact that the state must keep records of the placement. And in March of 2018, the states of Indiana... Louisiana, and Texas, along with several individuals, non-Native American couples, uh, the Brackens, the Cliffords, and the Librettis, and the uh, Alta Garcias, uh, who are the mother of Native American children, uh, who were ultimately adopted by the Librettis, filed a complaint in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Texas, challenging the constitutionality of several provisions of the ICWA. The alleged violations of Article 1 and the anti-commandeering doctrine of the 10th Amendment, the equal protection component of the 5th Amendment, and substantive due process and the non-delegation doctrine. Now, four tribes, the Cherokee Nation, the Oneida Nation, the Quinault, and the Morongo Band of Mission Indians uh, intervene as defendants and the U.S. government and tribes moved to dismiss the complaint for a lack of standing. Now, the plaintiffs moved for summary judgment. The district court denied the motion to dismiss and affirmed the plaintiffs had standing. The court also granted summary judgment to the plaintiffs for all of their claims, but for the claim of due process. Now, the court ruled that the ICWA provisions at issue were unconstitutional. On appeal, the Navajo Nation was allowed to uh, support the appellants and a divided panel on the United States Circuit Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit affirmed the Northern District of Texas's judgment that the plaintiffs had standing but reversed the grant for summary judgment and, among other things, the court held that the provision violated the Tenth Amendment for imposing duties on the states based on federal law. And that's really what I like about this last case here that we're going to be following with is that it is based on the anti-commandeering doctrine. Uh, This is fantastic. Uh, This is actually uh, something that I have wanted to cover here on this show for a long time. In fact, I've actually had a script written about the anti-commandeering doctrine for a long time, maybe a year or two now. Um, But I've been waiting until we had a anti-commandeering doctrine case so we could tie it in with that. But anyways, uh, 
essentially the reason I'm, I'm saying all this is because the next video that I'm going to be doing is going to be a video about the anti-commandeering doctrine. And we are going to be looking at uh, the five landmark Supreme Court cases that provided the anti-commandeering doctrine precedent under the 10th Amendment. Uh, now, uh, this is, yeah, I, I'm very excited about this, and that'll be a really good episode. So that'll be my next episode. We'll be doing a deep dive into uh, what I think is one of the most fascinating areas of constitutional law, and especially, specifically, 10th Amendment jurisprudence. Now, also, uh, unrelated to anything we've been talking about here thus far, we also have a uh, case recently that was a really big win for the Second Amendment. It was a case known as U.S. v. Price out of the District Court of West Virginia, uh, and this applied the Bruin test and found that the requirement of serial numbers on guns violates the Second Amendment, which is amazing. Uh, and so I will be uh, doing an episode uh, on that, too, coming up here in the very near future. So I just want to let you guys know, uh, be looking out for that. Uh, and also, too, uh, head over to my Substack page as well, because like I said, I just put out an interesting article recently on the Continental Association and the Declaration of Resolve. And I have another article that I'm going to be putting out here in the next day or two over there uh, on the common law Fourth Amendment. Uh, so anyway, and finally, one more thing is, uh, is there a Supreme Court case that is happening in this term that you would like me to cover uh, on the channel that you haven't seen me bring up and discuss here today. If there is, let me know in the comment section below. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, we will be back with some of those other videos uh, I just told you about here. I'll be back in a couple days with those. Uh, and then we will be covering these five cases that I talked about as things come up. So as there are uh, oral arguments and as the amicus briefs start coming in and all of these things, we will be following along with all of these cases. So uh, yeah, and you can find information for all of these uh, down in the video description. I'll have links over to uh, places like SCOTUS blog uh, and the Supreme Court.gov site where you can go and where you can get all the uh, files and the court briefs and all the cool stuff uh, that tells you all the background of this case. So go check those out too if you are interested. Anyways, that is going to do it for me here today on Legalese. I want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Uh, if you're not subscribed to the channel, maybe consider doing that so you always know when new material comes out. Uh, if you like the video, hit the like button. If you disliked it, hit the dislike button. Uh, leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought. Uh, and yeah, that's all I really got for you guys today. So uh, until next time, this has been Bob for Legalese, talking about the Supreme Court. And of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est. Full of amps, brother